0: 1842 The Mystery of Marie Roget A sequel to The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. Poe Edgar Allan, 1809-49, American poet, short story writer and critic who is best known for his tales of ratiocination, his fantastical horror stories, and his genre-founding detective stories. Poe, whose cloudy personal life is a virtual legend, considered himself primarily a poet. Mystery of Marie Roger, 1842, a sequel to The Murders in the Rue Morgue. It is a long and involved mystery which presents many coincidences and sequences of times and facts that parallel both stories. Introduction There are ideal series of events which run parallel with the real ones. They rarely coincide. Men and circumstances generally modify the ideal train of events, so that it seems imperfect, and its consequences are equally imperfect. Thus with the Reformation, instead of Protestantism came Lutheranism. Novellus, Moral Ansichton. Upon the original publication of Marie Roget, the footnotes now appended were considered unnecessary, but the lapse of several years since the tragedy upon which the tale is based, renders it expedient to give them, and also to say a few words in explanation of the general design. A young girl, Mary Cecilia Rogers, was murdered in the vicinity of New York, and although her death occasioned an intense and long-enduring excitement, the mystery attending it had remained unsolved at the period when the present paper was written and published, November, 1842. Herein, under pretence of relating the fate of a Parisian grisette, the author has followed, in minute detail, the essential, while merely paralleling the inessential, Facts of the real murder of Mary Rogers. Thus, all argument founded upon the fiction is applicable to the truth, and the investigation of the truth was the object. The mystery of Marie Roger was composed at a distance from the scene of the atrocity, and with no other means of investigation than the newspapers afforded. Thus, much escaped the writer of which he could have availed himself had he been upon the spot and visited the localities. It may not be improper to record, nevertheless, that the confessions of two persons, one of them the Madame de Luc of the narrative, made at different periods, long subsequent to the publication, confirmed in full not only the general conclusion but absolutely all the chief hypothetical details by which that conclusion was attained. Mystery of Marie Roget. There are few persons, even among the calmest thinkers, who have not occasionally been startled into a vague yet thrilling half credence in the supernatural by coincidences of so seemingly marvelous a character that, as mere coincidences, the intellect has been unable to receive them. Such sentiments for the half-credences of which I speak have never the full force of thought such sentiments are seldom thoroughly stifled unless by reference to the doctrine of chance, or, as it is technically termed, the calculus of probabilities. Now this calculus is, in its essence, purely mathematical, and thus we have the anomaly of the most rigidly exact in science applied to the shadow and spirituality of the most intangible in speculation. The extraordinary details which I am now called upon to make public, will be found to form, as regards sequence of time, the primary branch of a series of scarcely intelligible coincidences, whose secondary or concluding branch will be recognized by all readers in the late murder of Mary Cecilia Rogers, at New York. When, In an article entitled The Murders in the Rue Morgue, I endeavored, about a year ago, to depict some very remarkable features in the mental character of my friend, the Chevalier C. Augusta de Pan, it did not occur to me that I should ever resume the subject. This depicting of character constituted my design, and this design was thoroughly fulfilled in the wild train of circumstances brought to instance de Pan's idiosyncrasy. I might have adduced other examples but I should have proven no more. Late events, however, in their surprising development, have startled me into some farther details, which will carry with them the air of extorted confession. Hearing what I have lately heard, it would be indeed strange should I remain silent in regard to what I both heard and saw so long ago. Upon the winding up of the tragedy involved in the deaths of Madame El and her daughter, the Chevalier dismissed the affair at once from his attention, and relapsed into his old habits of moody reverie. Prone, at all times, to abstraction, I readily fell in with his humor, and continuing to occupy our chambers in the Faubourg Saint-Germain, we gave the future to the winds, and slumbered tranquilly in the present, weaving the dull world around us into dreams. But these dreams were not altogether uninterrupted. It may readily be supposed that the part played by my friend, in the drama at the Rue Morgue had not failed of its impression upon the fancies of the Parisian police. With its emissaries, the name of Pan had grown into a household word. The simple character of those inductions by which he had disentangled the mystery never having been explained even to the prefect, or to any other individual than myself, of course it is not surprising that the affair was regarded as little less than miraculous, or that the Chevalier's analytical abilities acquired for him the credit of intuition. His frankness would have led him to disabuse every inquirer of such prejudice, but his indolent humor forbade all further agitation of a topic whose interest to himself had long ceased. It thus happened that he found himself the cynosure of the political eyes, and the cases were not few in which attempt was made to engage his services at the prefecture. One of the most remarkable instances was that of the murder of a young girl named Marie Roger. This event occurred about two years after the atrocity in the rue Morgue. Marie, whose Christian and family name will at once arrest attention from their resemblance to those of the unfortunate cigar girl was the only daughter of the widow Estelle Roger. The father had died during the child's infancy, and from the period of his death, until within eighteen months before the assassination which forms the subject of our narrative, the mother and daughter had dwelt together in the Rue Pavie Saint-Andrea, one madam there keeping a pension, assisted by Marie. Affairs went on thus until the latter had attained her twenty-second year, when her great beauty attracted the notice of a perfumer, who occupied one of the shops in the basement of the Palais Royal, and whose custom lay, chiefly among the desperate adventurers infesting that neighborhood. Monsieur L.E. Blanc II was not unaware of the advantages to be derived from the attendance of the fair Marie in his perfumery, and his liberal proposals were accepted eagerly by the girl, although with somewhat more of hesitation by Madame. 1. Nassau Street two Anderson The anticipations of the shopkeeper were realized, and his room soon became notorious through the charms of the sprightly grisette. She had been in his employ about a year when her admirers were thrown into confusion by her sudden disappearance from the shop. Monsieur L.E. Blanc was unable to account for her absence, and Madame Roget was distracted with anxiety and terror. The public papers immediately took up the theme, and the police were upon the point of making serious investigations, when, one fine morning, after the lapse of a week, Marie, in good health, but with a somewhat saddened air, made her reappearance at her usual counter in the perfumery. All inquiry, except that of a private character, was of course, immediately hushed. Monsieur L. E. Blanc professed total ignorance, as before. Marie, with Madame, replied to all questions, that the last week had been spent at the house of a relation in the country. Thus the affair died away, and was generally forgotten, for the girl, ostensibly to relieve herself from the impertinence of curiosity soon bade a final adieu to the perfumer, and sought the shelter of her mother's residence in the Rue Pavy St. Andrea. It was about five months after this return home, that her friends were alarmed by her sudden disappearance for the second time. Three days elapsed, and nothing was heard of her. On the fourth her corpse was found floating in the Seine Three, near the shore which is opposite the Cartier of the Rue St. Andre. And at a three, the Hudson Point, not very far distant from the secluded neighborhood of the Barrier du Roule. For the atrocity of this murder, for it was at once evident that murder had been committed, the youth and beauty of the victim, and, above all her previous notoriety, conspired to produce intense excitement in the minds of the sensitive Parisians. I can call to mind no similar occurrence producing so general and so intense an in effect. For several weeks, In the discussion of this one absorbing theme, even the momentous political topics of the day were forgotten. The prefect made unusual exertions, and the powers of the whole Parisian police were, of course, tasked to the utmost extent. Upon the first discovery of the corpse, it was not supposed that the murderer would be able to elude, for more than a very brief period, the Inquisition which was immediately set on foot. It was not until the expiration of a week that it was deemed necessary to offer a reward, and even then this reward was limited to a thousand francs. In the meantime the investigation proceeded with vigor, if not always with judgment, and numerous individuals were examined to no purpose, while, owing to the continual absence of all clue to the mystery, the popular excitement greatly increased. At the end of the tenth day it was thought advisable to double the sum originally proposed, and, at length, the second week having four Weehawken elapsed without leading to any discoveries, and the prejudice which always exists in Paris against the police having given vent to itself in several serious immuets, the prefect took it upon himself to offer the sum of twenty thousand francs for the conviction of the assassin, or, if more than one should prove to have been implicated, for the conviction of any one of the assassins. In the proclamation setting forth this reward, A full pardon was promised to any accomplice who should come forward in evidence against his fellow, and to the whole was appended, wherever it appeared, the private placard of a committee of citizens, offering 10,000 francs, in addition to the amount proposed by the prefecture. The entire reward thus stood at no less than 30,000 francs, which will be regarded as an extraordinary sum when we consider the humble condition of the girl, and the great frequency, in large cities, Of such atrocities as the one described. No one doubted now that the mystery of this murder would be immediately brought to light. But although, in one or two instances, arrests were made which promised elucidation, yet nothing was elicited which could implicate the parties suspected, and they were discharged forthwith. Strange as it may appear, the third week from the discovery of the body had passed, and passed without any light being thrown upon the subject, before even a rumor of the events which had so agitated the public mind reached the ears of Dapan and myself. Engaged in researches which had absorbed our whole attention, it had been nearly a month since either of us had gone abroad, or received a visitor, or more than glanced at the leading political articles in one of the daily papers. The first intelligence of the murder was brought us by G., in person. He called upon us early in the afternoon of the 13th of July, 18- and remained with us until late in the night. He had been piqued by the failure of all his endeavors to ferret out the assassins. His reputation so he said with a peculiarly Parisian air was at stake. Even his honor was concerned. The eyes of the public were upon him, and there was really no sacrifice which he would not be willing to make for the development of the mystery. He concluded a somewhat droll speech with a compliment upon what he was pleased to term the tact of De Pen and made him a direct and certainly a liberal proposition, the precise nature of which I do not feel myself at liberty to disclose, but which has no bearing upon the proper subject of my narrative. The compliment my friend rebutted as best he could, but the proposition he accepted at once, although its advantages were altogether provisional. This point being settled, the prefect broke forth at once into explanations of his own views, interspersing them with long comments upon the evidence, Of which latter we were not yet in possession. He discoursed much and, beyond doubt, learnedly, while I hazarded an occasional suggestion as the night wore drowsily away. Dupin, sitting steadily in his accustomed armchair, was the embodiment of respectful attention. He wore spectacles, during the whole interview, and an occasional glance beneath their green glasses sufficed to convince me that he slept not the less soundly, because silently, throughout the seven or eight leaden-footed hours which immediately preceded the departure of the prefect. In the morning, I procured, at the prefecture, a full report of all the evidence elicited, and, at the various newspaper offices, a copy of every paper in which, from first to last, had been published any decisive information in regard to this sad affair. Freed from all that was positively disproved, this mass of information stood thus, Marie Roget left the residence of her mother, in the Rue Pavy saint andrea about 9 o'clock in the morning of Sunday, June 22nd, 18-. In going out, she gave notice to a Monsieur Jacques Saint Eustachet, 5 and to him only, of her intention to spend the day with an aunt, who resided in the Rue des Dromes. The Rue des Dromes is a short and narrow but populous thoroughfare, not far from the banks of the river, and at a distance of some two miles in the most direct course possible, from the pension of Madame Roget. Saint Eustaché was the accepted suitor of Marie, and lodged, as well as took his meals, at the pension. He was to have gone for his betrothed at dusk, and to have escorted her home. In the afternoon, however, it came on to rain heavily, and, supposing that she would remain all night at her aunt's, as she had done under similar circumstances before, he did not think it necessary to keep his promise. As night drew on, Madame Roget, who was an infirm old lady, seventy years of age, was heard to express a fear that she should never see Marie again, but this observation attracted little attention at the time. Five pain on Monday it was ascertained that the girl had not been to the Rue de Dromes, and when the day elapsed without tidings of her, a tardy search was instituted at several points in the city and its environs. It was not, however, until the fourth day from the period of her disappearance that anything satisfactory was ascertained respecting her. On this day, Wednesday, the 25th of June, a Monsieur beauvais who, with a friend, had been making inquiries for Marie near the Barrier du Roule, on the shore of the Seine which is opposite the Rue Pavy saint andrea was informed that a corpse had just been towed ashore by some fishermen, who had found it floating in the river. Upon seeing the body, Beauvais, after some hesitation, identified it as that of the perfumery girl. His friend recognized it more promptly. The face was suffused with dark blood, some of which issued from the mouth. No foam was seen, as in the case of the merely drowned. There was no discoloration in the cellular tissue. About the throat were bruises and impressions of fingers. The arms were bent over on the chest and were rigid. The right hand was clenched, the left partially open. On the left wrist were two circular excoriations, apparently the effect of ropes, or of a rope in more than one volution. A part of the right wrist, also, was much chafed, as well as the back throughout its extent, but more especially at the shoulder blades. In bringing the body to the shore the fisherman had attached to it a rope, but none of the excorations had six-chromalin been affected by this. The flesh of the neck was much swollen. There were no cuts apparent, or bruises which appeared the effect of blows. A piece of lace was found tied so tightly around the neck as to be hidden from sight, it was completely buried in the flesh, and was fastened by a knot which lay just under the left ear. This alone would have sufficed to produce death. The medical testimony spoke confidently of the virtuous character of the deceased. She had been subjected, it said, to brutal violence. The corpse was in such condition when found, that there could have been no difficulty in its recognition by friends. The dress was much torn and otherwise disordered. In the outer garment, a slip, about a foot wide, had been torn upward from the bottom hem to the waist, but not torn off. It was wound three times around the waist, and secured by a sort of hitch in the back. The dress immediately beneath the frock was of fine muslin, and from this a slip eighteen inches wide had been torn entirely out torn very evenly and with great care. It was found around her neck, fitting loosely, and secured with a hard knot. Over this muslin slip and the slip of lace the strings of a bonnet were attached, the bonnet being appended. The knot by which the strings of the bonnet were fastened was not a lady's, but a slip or sailor's knot. After the recognition of the corpse, it was not, as usual, taken to the morgue, this formality being superfluous, but hastily interred not far from the spot at which it was brought ashore. Through the exertions of Beauvais, the matter was industriously hushed up, as far as possible, and several days had elapsed before any public emotion resulted. A weekly paper, seven however, at length took up the theme, the corpse was disinterred, and a re-examination instituted, but nothing was elicited beyond what has been already noted. The clothes, however, were now submitted to the mother and friends of the deceased, and fully identified as those worn by the girl upon leaving home. Meantime, the excitement increased hourly. Several individuals were arrested and discharged. Saint Eustache fell especially under suspicion, and he failed, at first, to give an intelligible account of his whereabouts during the Sunday on which Marie left home. Subsequently, however, he submitted to Monsieur G., affidavits, accounting satisfactorily for every hour of the day in question. As time passed and no discovery ensued, a thousand contradictory rumors were circulated and journalists busied themselves in suggestions. Among these, the one which attracted the most notice was the idea that Marie Roger still lived, that the corpse found in the Seine was that of some other unfortunate. It will be proper that I submit to the reader some passages which embody the suggestion alluded to. These passages are literal translations from Latoil, a paper conducted, in general, with much ability. Mademoiselle Roger left her mother's house on Sunday morning, June 22, 18. with the ostensible purpose of going to see her aunt, or some seven The New York Mercury 8, The New York Brother Jonathan, edited by H. Hastings Weld, ESQ Other Connection, in the Rue From that hour, nobody is proved to have seen her. There is no trace or tidings of her at all. There has no person, whatever, come forward, so far, who saw her at all in that day, after she left her mother's door. Now though we have no evidence that Marie Roger was in the land of the living after nine o'clock on Sunday, June the 22nd, we have proof that, up to that hour, she was alive. On Wednesday noon, at 12, a female body was discovered afloat on the shore of the Barrier du Roule. This was, even if we presume that Marie Roger was thrown into the river within three hours after she left her mother's house, only three days from the time she left her home three days to an hour but it is folly to suppose that the murder, if murder was committed on her body, could have been consummated soon enough to have enabled her murderers to throw the body into the river before midnight. Those who are guilty of such horrid crimes choose darkness rather than light. Thus we see that if the body found in the river was that of Marie Roget it could only have been in the water two and a half days, or three at the outside. All experience has shown that drowned bodies, or bodies thrown into the water immediately after death by violence, require from six to ten days for sufficient decomposition to take place to bring them to the top of the water. Even where a cannon is fired over a corpse, and it rises before at least five or six days' immersion, it sinks again, if left alone. Now, we ask, what was there in this case to cause a departure from the ordinary course of nature? if the body had been kept in its mangled state on shore until Tuesday night some trace would be found in shore of the murderers. It is a doubtful point, also, whether the body would be so soon afloat, even were it thrown in after having been dead two days. And, furthermore, it is exceedingly improbable that any villains who had committed such a murder as is here supposed, would have thrown the body in without weight to sink it, when such a precaution could have so easily been taken. The editor here proceeds to argue that the body must have been in the water not three days merely, but, at least, five times three days, because it was so far decomposed that Beauvais had great difficulty in recognizing it. This latter point, however, was fully disproved. I continue the translation, what, then, are the facts on which M. Beauvais says that he had no doubt the body was that of Marie Roget? He ripped up the gown sleeve and says he found marks which satisfied him of the identity. The public generally supposed those marks to have consisted of some description of scars. He rubbed the arm and found hair upon it something as indefinite, we think, as can readily be imagined as little conclusive as finding an arm in the sleeve. Embové did not return that night, but sent word to Madame Roger at 7 o'clock, on Wednesday evening, that an investigation was still in progress respecting her daughter. If we allow that Madame Roger, from her age and grief, could not go over, which is allowing a great deal, there certainly must have been someone who would have thought it worthwhile to go over and attend the investigation, if they thought the body was that of Marie. Nobody went over. There was nothing said or heard about the matter in the Rue Pavie St. Andrea, that reached even the occupants of the same building. M. St. Eustache, the lover and intended husband of Marie, who boarded in her mother's house, deposes that he did not hear of the discovery of the body of his intended until the next morning, when M. Beauvais came into his chamber and told him of it. For an item of news like this, it strikes us it was very coolly received. In this way the journal endeavoured to create the impression of an apathy on the part of the relatives of Marie inconsistent with the supposition that these relatives believed the corpse to be hers. Its insinuations amount to this that Marie, with the connivance of her friends, had absented herself from the city for reasons involving a charge against her chastity, and that these friends upon the discovery of a corpse in the Seine, somewhat resembling that of the girl, had availed themselves of the opportunity to impress the public with the belief of her death. But Latoil was again over hasty. It was distinctly proved that no apathy, such as was imagined, existed, that the old lady was exceedingly feeble, and so agitated as to be unable to attend to any duty, that Saint Eustache, so far from receiving the news coolly, was distracted with grief, and bore himself so frantically, that Mbove prevailed upon a friend and relative to take charge of him, and prevent his attending the examination at the disinterment. Moreover although it was stated by latoil that the corpse was reinterred at the public expense that an advantageous offer of private sepulture was absolutely declined by the family and that no member of the family attended the ceremonial although i say all this was asserted by latoil in furtherance of the impression it designed to convey yet all this was satisfactorily disproved in a subsequent number of the paper an attempt was made to throw suspicion upon Beauvais himself the editor says now Then, a change comes over the matter. We are told that, on one occasion, while a Madame B was at Madame Roget's house, Mbouvet, who was going out, told her that a gendarme was expected there, and that she, Madame B, must not say anything to the gendarme until he returned, but let the matter be for him. In the present posture of affairs, Mbouvet appears to have the whole matter locked up in his head. A single step cannot be taken without Mbove, for, go which way you will you run against him. For some reason he determined that nobody shall have anything to do with the proceedings but himself, and he has elbowed the male relatives out of the way, according to their representations, in a very singular manner. He seems to have been very much averse to permitting the relatives to see the body. By the following fact, some color was given to the suspicion thus thrown upon Bove a visitor at his office, a few days prior to the girl's disappearance, and during the absence of its occupant, had observed a rose in the keyhole of the door, and the name Marie inscribed upon a slate which hung near at hand. The general impression, so far as we were enabled to glean it from the newspapers, seemed to be, that Marie had been the victim of a gang of desperados that by these she had been borne across the river, maltreated, and murdered. L. E. Commercial 9. However, a print of extensive influence, was earnest in combating this popular idea. I quote a passage or two from its columns, We are persuaded that pursuit has hitherto been on a false scent, so far as it has been directed to the Barrier-du-Rule. It is impossible that a person so well known to thousands as this young woman was, should have passed three blocks without someone having seen her, and anyone who saw her would have remembered it, for she interested all who knew her. It was when the streets were full of people, when she went out. It is impossible that she could have gone to the Barrier du Rule, or to the Rue de Dromes, without being recognized by a dozen persons, yet no one has come forward who saw her outside of her mother's door, and there is no evidence, except the testimony concerning her expressed intentions, that she did go out at all. Her gown was torn, bound round her, and tied and by that the body was carried as a bundle. If the murder had been committed at the Barrier du Rule, there would have been no necessity for any such arrangement. The fact that the body was found floating near the barrier, is no proof as to where it was thrown into the water. A piece of one of the unfortunate girl's petticoats, two feet long and one foot wide, was torn out and tied under her chin around the back of her head, probably to prevent screams. This was done by fellows who had no pocket-handkerchief. Nine New York Journal of Commerce a day or two before the prefect called upon us, however, some important information reached the police, which seemed to overthrow, at least, the chief portion of l e. Commercial's argument. Two small boys, sons of a Madame de Luc, while roaming among the woods near the barrier du Roule, chanced to penetrate a close thicket, within which were three or four large stones, forming a kind of seat with a back and footstool. On the upper stone lay a white petticoat, on the second, a silk scarf. A parasol, gloves, and a pocket handkerchief were also here found. The handkerchief bore the name Marie Roger. Fragments of dress were discovered on the brambles around. The earth was trampled, the bushes were broken, and there was every evidence of a struggle. Between the thicket and the river, the fences were found taken down, and the ground bore evidence of some heavy burthen having been dragged along it. A weekly paper, L.E. Solisle, 10 had the following comments upon this discovery comments which merely echoed the sentiment of the whole Parisian press the things had all evidently been there at least three or four weeks, they were all mildewed down hard with the action of the rain, and stuck together from mildew. The grass had grown around and over some of them the silk on the parasol was strong but the threads of it were run together within the upper part where it had been doubled and folded was all mildewed and rotten and tore on 10 philadelphia saturday evening post edited by c i peterson esq it's being opened the pieces of her frock torn out by the bushes were about 3 inches wide and 6 inches long one part was the hem of the frock and it had been mended the other piece was part of the skirt not the hem. They looked like strips torn off, and were on the thorn bush, about a foot from the ground. There can be no doubt, therefore, that the spot of this appalling outrage has been discovered. Consequent upon this discovery, new evidence appeared. Madame Luc testified that she keeps a roadside in not far from the bank of the river, opposite the Barrier du Roule. The neighborhood is secluded particularly so. It is the usual Sunday resort of blackguards from the city, who cross the river in boats. About three o'clock, in the afternoon of the Sunday in question, a young girl arrived at the inn, accompanied by a young man of dark complexion. The two remained here for some time. On their departure, they took the road to some thick woods in the vicinity. Madame Deluxe's attention was called to the dress worn by the girl, on account of its resemblance to one worn by a deceased relative a scarf was particularly noticed. Soon after the departure of the couple, a gang of miscreants made their appearance, behaved boisterously, ate and drank without making payment, followed in the route of the young man and girl, returned to the inn about dusk, and recrossed the river as if in great haste. It was soon after dark, upon this same evening, that Madame Deluc, as well as her eldest son, heard the screams of a female in the vicinity of the inn. The screams were violent but brief. Madame D recognized not only the scarf which was found in the thicket, but the dress which was discovered upon the corpse. An omnibus driver, Valence, 11 now also testified that he saw Marie Roget cross a ferry on the Seine, on the Sunday in question, in company with a young man of dark complexion. He, Valence, knew Marie, and could not be mistaken in her identity. The articles found in the thicket were fully identified by the relatives of Marie. The items of evidence and information thus collected by myself, from the newspapers, at the suggestion of Dupin, embraced only one more point but this was a point of seemingly vast consequence. It appears that, immediately after the discovery of the clothes as above described, the lifeless or nearly lifeless body of Saint Eustaché, Marie's betrothed, was found in the vicinity of what all now supposed the scene of the outrage. A file labeled Laudanum, and emptied, was found near him. His breath gave evidence of the poison. He died without speaking. Upon his person was found a letter, briefly stating his love for Marie, with his design of self-destruction. I need scarcely tell you, said Dupin, as he finished the perusal of my notes that this is a far more intricate case than that of the morgue, from which it differs in one important respect. This is an ordinary, although an atrocious, instance of crime. There is nothing peculiarly outré about it. You will observe that, 11 Adam for this reason, the mystery has been considered easy, when, for this reason, it should have been considered difficult, of solution. Thus, at first, it was thought unnecessary to offer a reward. The myrmidons of G were able at once to comprehend how and why such an atrocity might have been committed. They could picture to their imaginations a mode many modes and a motive many motives, and because it was not impossible that either of these numerous modes or motives could have been the actual one, they have taken it for granted that one of them must. But the ease with which these variable fancies were entertained, and the very plausibility which each assumed, should have been understood as indicative rather of the difficulties than of the facilities which must attend elucidation. I have before observed that it is by prominences above the plane of the ordinary, that reason feels her way, if at all, in her search for the true, and that the proper question in cases such as this, is not so much what has occurred, as what has occurred that has never occurred before. In the investigations at the house of Madame El Espinay, 12 The agents of G were discouraged and confounded by that very unusualness which, to a properly regulated intellect, would have afforded the surest omen of success, while this same intellect might have been plunged in despair at the ordinary character of all that met the eye in the case of the perfumery girl, and yet told of nothing but easy triumph to the functionaries of the prefecture. 12 C Murders in the Rue Morgue In the case of Madame Elispanet and her daughter, there was, even at the beginning of our investigation, no doubt that murder had been committed. The idea of suicide was excluded at once. Here, too, we are freed, at the commencement, from all supposition of self-murder. The body found at the barrier du rule was found under such circumstances as to leave us no room for embarrassment upon this important point. But it has been suggested that the corpse discovered is not that of the Marie Roger for the conviction of whose assassin, or assassins, the reward is offered, and respecting whom, solely, our agreement has been arranged with the prefect. We both know this gentleman well. It will not do to trust him too far. If, dating our inquiries from the body found, and then tracing a murderer, we yet discover this body to be that of some other individual than Marie, or if, starting from the living Marie, we find her, yet find her unassassinated in either case we lose our labor, since it is Miss with whom we have to deal. For our own purpose, therefore, if not for the purpose of justice, it is indispensable that our first step should be the determination of the identity of the corpse with the Marie Roger who is missing. With the public the arguments of Latoil have had weight, and that the journal itself is convinced of their importance would appear from the manner in which it commences one of its essays upon the subject several of the morning papers of the day, it says, speak of the conclusive article in Monday's A Toil. To me, this article appears conclusive of little beyond the zeal of its inditer. We should bear in mind that, in general, it is the object of our newspapers rather to create a sensation to make a point than to further the cause of truth. The latter end is only pursued when it seems coincident with the former. The print which merely falls in with ordinary opinion, however well founded this opinion may be, earns for itself no credit with the mob. The mass of the people regard as profound only him who suggests pungent contradictions of the general idea. In ratiocination, not less than in literature, it is the epigram which is the most immediately and the most universally appreciated. In both, it is of the lowest order of merit. What I mean to say is, that it is the mingled epigram and melodrame of the idea, that Marie Roget still lives, rather than any true plausibility in this idea, which have suggested it to Latoil and secured it a favorable reception with the public. Let us examine the heads of this journal's argument, endeavoring to avoid the incoherence with which it is originally set forth. The first aim of the writer is to show, from the brevity of the interval between Marie's disappearance and the finding of the floating corpse, that this corpse cannot be that of Marie. The reduction of this interval to its smallest possible dimension, becomes thus, at once, an object with the reasoner. In the rash pursuit of this object, he rushes into mere assumption at the outset. It is folly to suppose, he says, that the murder, if murder was committed on her body, Could have been consummated soon enough to have enabled her murderers to throw the body into the river before midnight. We demand at once, and very naturally, why? Why is it folly to suppose that the murder was committed within five minutes after the girls quitting her mother's house? Why is it folly to suppose that the murder was committed at any given period of the day? There have been assassinations at all hours. But, had the murder taken place at any moment between 9 o'clock in the morning of Sunday and a quarter before midnight, there would still have been time enough to throw the body into the river before midnight. This assumption, then, amounts precisely to this that the murder was not committed on Sunday at all and, if we allow Latoil to assume this, we may permit it any liberties whatever. The paragraph beginning It is folly to suppose that the murder, etc., however it appears as printed in Latoil may be imagined to have existed actually thus in the brain of its inditer, it is folly to suppose that the murder, if murder was committed on the body, could have been committed soon enough to have enabled her murderers to throw the body into the river before midnight, it is folly, we say, to suppose all this, and to suppose at the same time, as we are resolved to suppose, that, the body was not thrown in until after midnight a sentence sufficiently inconsequential in itself, but not so utterly preposterous as the one printed. Were it my purpose, continued De pen, merely to make out a case against this passage of Latoil's argument, I might safely leave it where it is. It is not, however, with Latoile that we have to do, but with truth. The sentence in question has but one meaning, as it stands, and this meaning I have fairly stated, but it is material that we go behind the mere words, for an idea which these words have obviously intended, and failed to convey. It was the design of the journalists to say that at whatever period of the day or night of Sunday this murder was committed, it was improbable that the assassins would have ventured to bear the corpse to the river before midnight. And herein lies, really, the assumption of which I complain. It is assumed that the murder was committed at such a position, and under such circumstances, that the bearing it to the river became necessary. Now, the assassination might have taken place upon the river's brink, or on the river itself, and, thus, the throwing the corpse in the water might have been resorted to at any period of the day or night, as the most obvious and most immediate mode of disposal. You will understand that I suggest nothing here as probable, or as coincident with my own opinion. My design, so far, has no reference to the facts of the case. I wish merely to caution you against the whole tone of Latoil's suggestion, by calling your attention to its ex character at the outset. Having prescribed thus a limit to suit its own preconceived notions, having assumed that, if this were the body of Marie, it could have been in the water but a very brief time, the journal goes on to say, All experience has shown that drowned bodies, or bodies thrown into the water immediately after death by violence, require from six to ten days for sufficient decomposition to take place to bring them to the top of the water. Even when a cannon is fired over a corpse, and it rises before at least five or six days immersion, it sinks again if let alone. These assertions have been tacitly received by every paper in Paris with the exception of L. E. Monitor 13, This latter print endeavors to combat that portion of the paragraph which has reference to drowned bodies only, by citing some five or six instances in which the bodies of individuals known to be drowned were found floating after the lapse of less time than is insisted upon by Latoil. But there is something excessively unphilosophical in the attempt, on the part of L. E. Moniter, to rebut the general assertion of Latoil, by a citation of particular instances militating against that assertion. Had it been possible to adduce fifty instead of five examples of bodies found floating at the end of two or three days, these fifty examples could still have been properly regarded only as exceptions to Latoil's rule, until such time as the rule itself should be confuted, Admitting the rule, and this Le Moniter does not deny, insisting merely upon its exceptions, the argument of Latoil is suffered to remain in full force, for this argument does not pretend to involve more than a question of the probability of the body having risen to the surface in less than three days, and this probability will be in favor of Latoil's position until the instances so childishly adduced shall be sufficient in number to establish an antagonistical rule. You will see at once that all argument upon this head should be urged, if at all, against the rule itself and for this end we must examine the rationale of the rule. Now the human body, in general is neither much lighter nor much heavier. 13. The New York commercial advertiser, edited by Colonel Stone. Then the water of the Seine—that that is to say, the specific gravity of the human body, in its natural condition, is about equal to the bulk of fresh water which it displaces. The bodies of fat and fleshy persons, with small bones, and of women generally, are lighter than those of the lean and large boned, and of men, and the specific gravity of the water of a river is somewhat influenced by the presence of the tide from the sea. But, leaving this tide out of the question, it may be said that very few human bodies will sink at all, even in fresh water, of their own accord. Almost anyone, falling into a river, will be enabled to float if he suffer the specific gravity of the water fairly to be a dust in comparison with his own that is to say, if he suffer his whole person to be immersed, with as little exception as possible. The proper position for one who cannot swim, is the upright position of the walker on land, with the head thrown fully back, and immersed, the mouth and nostrils alone remaining above the surface. Thus circumstanced, we shall find that we float without difficulty and without exertion. It is evident, however, that the gravities of the body, and of the bulk of water displaced, are very nicely balanced, and that a trifle will cause either to preponderate. An arm, for instance, uplifted from the water, and thus deprived of its support, is an additional weight sufficient to immerse the whole head, while the accidental aid of the smallest piece of timber will enable us to elevate the head so as to look about. Now. In the struggles of one unused to swimming, the arms are invariably thrown upward, while an attempt is made to keep the head in its usual perpendicular position. The result is the immersion of the mouth and nostrils, and the inception, during efforts to breathe while beneath the surface, of water into the lungs. Much is also received into the stomach, and the whole body becomes heavier by the difference between the weight of the air originally dist ending these cavities, and that of the fluid which now fills them. This difference is sufficient to cause the body to sink, as a general rule, but is insufficient in the case of individuals with small bones and an abnormal quantity of flaccid or fatty matter. Such individuals float even after drowning. The corpse, being supposed at the bottom of the river, will there remain until, by some means, its specific gravity again becomes less than that of the bulk of water which it displaces. This effect is brought about by decomposition, or otherwise. The result of decomposition is the generation of gas, dist ending the cellular tissues and all the cavities, and giving the puffed appearance which is so horrible. When this distension has so far progressed that the bulk of the corpse is materially increased without a corresponding increase of mass or weight, its specific gravity becomes less than that of the water displaced, and it forthwith makes its appearance at the surface but decomposition is modified by innumerable circumstances is hastened or retarded by innumerable agencies, for example, by the heat or cold of the season, by the mineral impregnation or purity of the water, by its depth or shallowness, by its currency or stagnation, by the temperament of the body, by its infection or freedom from disease before death. Thus it is evident that we can assign no period, with anything like accuracy, at which the corpse shall rise through decomposition. Under certain conditions this result would be brought about within an hour, under others it might not take place at all. There are chemical infusions by which the animal frame can be preserved forever from corruption, the bichloride of mercury is one. But, apart from decomposition, there may be, and very usually is, a generation of gas within the stomach, from the acetous fermentation of vegetable matter, Or within other cavities from other causes, sufficient to induce a distension which will bring the body to the surface. The effect produced by the firing of a cannon is that of simple vibration. This may either loosen the corpse from the soft mud or ooze in which it is embedded, thus permitting it to rise when other agencies have already prepared it for so doing, or it may overcome the tenacity of some putrescent portions of the cellular tissue, allowing the cavities to distend under the influence of the gas. Having thus before us the whole philosophy of this subject, we can easily test by it the assertions of Latoil. All experience shows, says this paper, that drowned bodies, or bodies thrown into the water immediately after death by violence, require from six to ten days for sufficient decomposition to take place to bring them to the top of the water. Even when a cannon is fired over a corpse, and it rises before at least five or six days' immersion it sinks again if let alone. The whole of this paragraph must now appear a tissue of inconsequence and incoherence. All experience does not show that drowned bodies require from six to ten days for sufficient decomposition to take place to bring them to the surface. Both science and experience show that the period of their rising is, and necessarily must be, indeterminate. If, moreover, a body has risen to the surface through firing of cannon, it will not sink again if let alone, until decomposition has so far progressed as to permit the escape of the generated gas. But I wish to call your attention to the distinction which is made between drowned bodies, and bodies thrown into the water immediately after death by violence, although the writer admits the distinction, he yet includes them all in the same category. I have shown how it is that the body of a drowning man becomes specifically heavier than its bulk of water, and that he would not sink at all, except for the struggle by which he elevates his arms above the surface, and his gasps for breath while beneath the surface gasps which supply by water the place of the original air in the lungs. But these struggles and these gasps would not occur in the body thrown